Where's me fucking Flanny and my Winnie Blues, you booner? Hello, Michelle. Geordie, hello. How you doing? Well, you know how I'm doing because... We just had lunch together. We've got the upstairs-downstairs happening again. My favourite. It's the best. It is. I love being part of the fam. And we love having you here, Michelle. It's so nice. Oh, I re- I'm so happy to hear you say that because if you didn't, I'd think, what a bitch. <laughs> I'm not the bitch in this relationship. You are. <laughs> the little bitch, even. The little bitch. <laughs> So, Michelle, what's the latest? What's new? Oh, I've had quite a lot of feedback from people. I've just had Rains Park, Mark, who's no longer from Rains Park, just say, will you say hello to Michelle and please tell her that, yes, pee and shower water can go down the same pipe. Listen, this has been a hot topic of debate. I'm really shocked at how many people are like, yeah, of course I pee in the shower. Like, it's yeah. normal. I don't we think just it had is a, normal. a conversation with someone about that. <laughs> A lot of people do it and think it's fine. We did have a conversation over lunch just now saying it's not fine if somebody's in the shower with you and they pee on you. That's not fine. Well, it depends what kind of stuff you're into. Maybe it's <laughs> fine. I don't know. But it's uh, it's not my idea of a good time. No. You know, I did do some research on this. Link the shit out of that on the on the show notes. And uh, the Thames Water Board, they basically clean the wee and the poo-poo water yeah. And then they yes. just pop it back into the Thames. But what they then don't tell you is that you then drink the Thames drink water. It. So yes, I kind of knew that. I think I knew that deep down. Mm. But you just don't like to think about it too hard when you're chugging on a glass of the old... H2-we. H-poo-o. Oh, no. <laughs> that is the sound of me drinking. Some yes. H-poo-o. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Hey, listen. We've gone straight to the poo talk and the wee talk. They hate that, Michelle. We need to say, oh, welcome, eavesdroppers. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to eavesdropping. You're eavesdropping on us. I'm Michelle. I'm Geordie. It's a weekly podcast. We love to do it. You love to listen to it. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe, please, people. And share, share, share. Tell everybody. We are still trying to get ourselves up there in the top I think the next goal is 0.2%, isn't it, Michelle? We're currently at five. We want to be at 0.2%. We do. So tell your friends. Little by little. Tell your family. Get everyone eavesdropping. We need you. We love you. We do love you. There's no doubt about it. Do you know what else, uh, Michelle, who else we love? Who? My postie, my hot postie. Should I tell you why? Oh, no. He came to the door the other day and spoke to my husband and he said, So, uh, which episode am I mentioned in? (laughs) Oh, no. no. As my husband doesn't listen so often anymore, he didn't know, but he was a bit confused. And he said, "Um, I think probably the girls do mention you now and again. They all get flustered and hot under the collar when you come to the door. So, something along those lines. Thanks, Paddy. He really dropped you in that. He did. He dropped you in it as well. Yeah, I know. But uh, the reason why my postie knows about the fact that we call him the hot postie now is because of another listener who I bumped into whilst walking my dog. He loves the podcast, Michelle. Yeah. His name's Rich. Hello, Rich. And uh, his family, Georgie and the gang. But 
Rich, didn't I tell you not to tell the postie that he's called Hot Postie? <laughs> and what did he do? He bloody went and told him. And then Hot Postie went to Paddy and said, Rich from the other street told me, but he told me not to say anything. So it's a load of secrets going on in suburbia. That's not okay, guys. But listen, Dan, I want you to know, here is your shout out. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. And the only reason why we think you're so lovely is because he always knows our name. He's always going the extra mile. Smiling, winking, giving me presents when I open the door. (laughs) I love you, Dan. Thank you so much for all the wonderful letters over the years. And actually, Michelle, I'm thinking of maybe Dan might get his own, if he sticks with the podcast, he might get his own jingle. And I'm thinking about asking Dan next time we see him if he'd like to be on the podcast, giving us some Christmas tips. Because, of course, it is now December, which means it's Christmas every day. In December. No, it's Christmas every Wednesday in December here on Eavesdropping the Podcast. Insert jingle here. One, two, three. It's Christmas every Wednesday in December. Drop to me. So will you drop with me? Drop, drop, drop. Sexy Santa in a place to play to play. What a hoot! What a hoot! So, Anyone who is listening to last week's episode will know that we talked about hoarders. Yeah. And we talked about the man in Sydney who it had a little true crime twist. And I was talking about, well, if he had no family and he had this like multi-million dollar house. You wanted it, Michelle. You put your dibs in. Honestly, I wouldn't have cared that someone was murdered in there. I would take that house <laughs> for free with a nice view of Sydney Harbour. But anyway, it turns out... No scruples. No scruples. I don't know who actually sold it and who got the money, but it did get sold and raised to the ground. Oh. Yes. So it was absolutely flattened. And I did see a picture of the house. It was no great shakes. I mean, it wasn't a fancy house. It It was special. Well, it was a hoarder house. It was a red brick, red brick house. So nothing too fancy. But yeah, that's gone. And then I think a new McMansion has been built on that site However, uh, it's not finished. The construction isn't completed because I think they ran out of money during pandemic. I don't know. So that is the update on the Hoarder House. Wow. Thank you, Michelle. We can count on you to come back with the goods because you are like a little rat up a drain pipe, aren't you, when it comes to the news? (laughs) She's in it. She's on it. She's up it. Thank you. Week after week, day after day. I actually don't know that that's a compliment, but um, thank you very much. It's meant to be. Now, I've got another little shout out. It's for Charlene, a new listener. Hello, Charlene. Please stay with us. She loves the jingle at the end. She loves eavesdropping, you know, the outro. It's she a, loves it's that. an earworm. I'm telling she you. She says it's, it's catchy. Yeah. It's an earworm. So good on you, Charlene. Thank you for joining us, Charlene. Welcome to the gang. And also, I've got another little shout out to our lovely listener in Australia. She's called Danny, a.k.a. Run Happy Danny on Instagram. <laughs> and she gave us the Phillip Island murders, which was such an interesting story. Yeah, and she then said, she sent a little DM to our Instagram account, mm. eavesdropping underscore, for anyone who's interested. She said that she didn't even realise she used to drive right past that um, the house where Beth was murdered. Wow. Daily. Or at one point when she was working around there. She also says that she loves listening to us. She loves the way that, because obviously we've been, I've lived in this country for 30 odd years, more than. And I have a little bit of a funny accent now. And I'm sure the Aussies will tell me when I go back how ridiculous I sound. 
and you probably have a bit of a queer accent as well, Michelle. She says she likes how we sound all British and and nicely spoken until suddenly we get a bit excited and we sound like a pair of bogans. <laughs> Seriously, you can take the bogan out of Australia, but you can't. No, what is it? What? You can take. Get it right. You can take Australia out of the bogan. No, no, you can't take the Australia out of the bogan. I don't you think mustn't. the bogan out of Australia. You shouldn't. No. No, you mustn't do that. That's what makes us special. Bogans. Yeah. Well, you're sitting in front of me today with a beanie hat on, which is, it was actually an outfit, it was like a uniform for what we call bogans in Australia. What would you call them here in England? A bogan. You know that we didn't call them bogans in Canberra. We Westies. called them Westies and Booners. Booners. You're a booner. <laughs> Where's my fucking flanny and my Winnie Blues, you booner? So a Westie was somebody from West Sid- Western Sydney and they were a bit kind of, they didn't care what they looked like. But they did because mm. they had to wear these flannel shirts, flannel, flannelette. What it's it? a flanny, a flanny check shirt. I love them. Ugg boots outside. Now people do now wear Ugg boots outside, but back in those days they were just slippers, guys. You don't wear your slippers outside. All right. I remember Jen got me one of my all-time favorite Christmas gifts. Thigh high uggies. Thigh high uggies. And they had a blue. <laughs> I knew they'd be thigh high. How did I know? No, they weren't thigh high. It's just that I was short. So they Over were long. The no, they were they were knee high. They were knee high boots. Okay. Knee high uggs. They're pretty special. Do you know what yeah. though? Do you know who did have thigh high uggs? And you <laughs> even have a pair. Kate Bush. Does she? She had a pair of thigh high uggs in the 70s. I don't have those anymore. What the hell happened? Did you give they them fell away? Apart. No. No, they fell apart. <gasps> they were wonderful. I know. You looked great in those. They weren't thigh high though, Michelle. They were just over the knee. Over the knee. They would have been thigh high they on me. They weren't Uggs. They were the other one. What's the other brand? There are other brands. Oh. Not Ugg boot, but the other one. Emu? Is there an oh, emu brand? Oh, there is an emu. Yeah, that's the fake. Well, not fake, but oh, they're not fake Uggs. Me. No, Uggs are the original and the best. Right. They are. They are. Yes, they are. They are. But hang on, we've gone off piste now. We were talking about Westies, Bogans and Booners. They wear flannel shirts, flannelette shirts, usually tied around their waist or open. And they wear Ugg boots outside, such a no-no. And they wear beanie hats like you're wearing, usually in their football colours or something. So they go for Hawthorne or one of those. Para. Parramatta. Parramatta eels. (laughs) It's that. eels. Is it the eels? Yeah. I went for the brown and White team. I can't remember who brown that was. White. Yeah. I know brown and yellow was Parramatta Eels. No, they were, oh, no, they the were tigers, blue. Balmain Tigers. Balmain Tigers. Oh, my God. Balmain it's been tigers. too long. But you know what? Raiders. Yeah. They're all different parts of this, of Sydney. Oh, and then there's Canberra. Canberra Raiders. Raiders. Yes. Canberra Raiders. And the football we're talking about is not It's not football that we have here in England. It's not like World Cup football. It's a different kind, isn't it? Oh, well, there's Rugby League. Rugby league. Rugby league, yeah. Yeah, it's an Aussie thing. But anyway. And there's your little Australian lesson there, people. <laughs> I need to just get back into it because I'll be there very soon. It's so exciting. I'm so excited for you. I wish I was going to. But we'll just have to eavesdrop from different sides of the world. Absolutely. Mm. So the reason why we were talking about that was because we were talking about Run Happy Danny, who is our listener, and I just love the interactions I have with her mm. on social media. She's fun. Anyone can get in touch, by the way. It's not just Danny. She doesn't get special treatment. Oh, and by the way, we have to say thank you to our patron. Yes. Thanks, Al. <laughs> we have a patron now. You could be a patron too. This is a very special listener. He has his own jingle, and he pays 
a certain amount of money a month. I'm not going to tell you how much, listeners. But for that, he gets extra special benefits. He's a friend with benefits (laughs) now, aren't you, Al? And we're going to make sure that we keep those extras coming over on our Patreon page, which is, Michelle, what's that page? Patreon forward slash eavesdropping. You'll find us, but it is actually hard to find us. You have to go to the link on our show notes or go to the website. There is... There's a link there. Or I'll put it on this week's social media as well, on our Facebook page and our Instagram page. Honestly, we welcome gifts. It's like Christmas. You can be, it can be Christmas every day for eavesdropping. Absolutely. There'll be merch coming very soon. We are a little ad hoc in the bonuses, the extras you get over on Patreon, but there's still some good shit there. So get on it. Yep. And there's more coming. Yes. I think we need to send him a little badge or something saying, I'm an eavesdropper. <laughs> I think How that's wonderful. Do write in. <laughs> anyway, I'm going back to Danny, our lovely listener, Danny, who gave me that wonderful story, Philip Island. Mm. And then she gave me this one, which I'm going to tell you now. Really? Okay. Yeah. It's about, and if you're Australian, you might know this one. I didn't know it because I'm obviously always in the Ingerland. But it's about a woman known as the Lady of the Swamp. Do you know it, Michelle? No, I don't. She's an Australian lady called Margaret Clement. And she was the middle child of Peter Scott Clement Sr., who was a humble bullock driver. Do you want to know what that is? Uh, Well, he's got a horse and... No, not horse and carriage. A carriage. Does he have a carriage? I don't know. Maybe Bullock I'm wrong. driver. No, I'm going to explain it to you. He had a herd of bullocks, which are really just for their meat because they've been, they've had their, well, he's chopped off right. bullocks. Okay. I think. Yep. Snip. Bullock. Yeah. Anyway, he emigrated from Scotland to Australia during the gold rush of the 1850s. So this, it's a different time. <laughs> Clement Senior, what's his name? Peter Scott Clement Senior. It was the lucky country when he arrived as an immigrant from Scotland because he bought shares in the Long Tunnel Gold Mine, which ended up making him and his family rich for days, as my kids would say, after the shares rocketed in value. Ooh. So then he went and purchased... This beautiful homestead on pasture land, which he stocked it up with sheep and cattle in. It was in Gippsland, Victoria, and he called it Tullaroo. 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 I'm going to say that normally. Tullaroo. 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 But in Australia, I reckon you'd say Tullaroo. (laughs) Maybe you would. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, this beautiful house was decorated and it had gardens and land, like landscape gardens, all very high end, very fancy. He had made this house, which was so beautiful, he'd left it to his two daughters who were unmarried to secure their financial future because obviously he wanted to make sure they were going to be okay in the future. Margaret and Jeannie Clement, they were the two of his four children who didn't marry. So when their father died in World War I yes. in 1890, the two sisters, the spinster sisters, they inherited Tullery and the land and everything that went with it. But unfortunately, Daddy did not teach them how to run the land and how to do all the things that he need to do to keep it nice. So they ended up um, employing some farm managers. But obviously, 
these farm managers, they saw these ladies coming. Oh, yeah. They siphoned money. People were moving fences around the land, all sorts of things. It just went wrong. They went up to the job. And then the mansion started to fall into disrepair. The garden was overrun with weeds. The house became tatty. And then the swamps rose up (gasps) because the cattle weren't using the pasture land anymore. And they were kind of managing the land. Right. It became a swamp. It was a swamp. And then it became a swamp again after Clement Sr. had done all that work. And then these two sisters just didn't know how to manage it. They employed the wrong people. Yeah. People weren't being good neighbours back then, clearly. The drainage channels all became blocked by silt and debris because the land just wasn't being cared for. It needed a lot of work and it would have cost a lot of money to run as well. So perhaps you could have just bought them a a penthouse or something instead or a condo <laughs> what in the 1800s i don't know it just would have been a little bit better maybe they should have just sold it straight away i don't know but anyway they, they should have sold it straight away yeah. and just like to you know take the money and run because they're spinsters they could easily have sold all that land and the house and then lived in some small easy to maintain house it would have made sense in Sydney or whatever it is. Victoria, or Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, now we have a swamp and these sisters are living in damp. The floorboards and furniture are rotting. Ooh. The windows were all breaking. There were even blackberry bushes like growing through the open windows. It was a right state, Michelle. It was so bad. And eventually Tullerie was surrounded by waist deep water and overrun with rats. Nasty. That is some nasty as business right there. So one good thing that they did do is that they sold off the livestock and that was their income gone. So now they've got no money and they're living in a really shitty house in a swamp. And they can't even sell that for no. money. They can't even sell that house. It's it's just a write-off. No. And at this point now the women are in their 30s and they used to be... Is that all? Yep. They used to be fancy socialites. They had thousands of dollars in the bank and they used to go to balls and travel and have a wonderful debutante time all the time. And now they're just a pair of old ladies, well, 30-year-olds, sitting in a wet, damp house, re-wearing all their ball gowns until they just get threadbare. It's a really sad story. Do you know what this sounds like? Great expectations. Great gardens. Great gardens. Great gardens. 100% mm. socialites gone wrong, you know, turn into eccentrics, house just falls into yep. disrepair. I'm going to link to that because it really is one of the most fascinating documentaries ever. Do you know I haven't seen it? I'm going to, I've seen snippets, but I'm going to watch the whole thing now that you've said that. Let's do it tonight. Let's. Sounds like a rollicking good fun time. (laughs) (laughs) If we pop the tequila open, it definitely will be. Oh, yes. So these two sisters now living in a really nasty uh, house with old tatty clothes and rats and stuff. They begin to withdraw from the outside world and they relied on family to deliver their food by trudging through the swamp to get to them. And it's snake infested as well. But occasionally the sisters would then have to, I think family were getting a bit sick of that, so the sisters would then have to make their own way through the waist-deep waters swamp. They knew the swamp pretty well, actually. They, they'd have to navigate it daily. Otherwise, how would they get food? So their financial situation worsened, and so did Jeannie's health, and she began to decline and become wheelchair-bound eventually. Oh it's not great. God. I mean, why aren't people Awful. taking care of these sisters? I don't know. 
So anyway, the pressure was now all on Margaret's shoulders to do all the shopping. She'd have to walk 12 kilometres to the next town, which is called Buffalo, which is a weird name for a town in... In Australia. Victoria. Mm, Buffalo. Buffalo. And so she'd go there every week and she'd have to carry the groceries back in a sack on her back. God knows where the money was coming from. Sometimes Margaret would drag herself through that swamp to her nearest neighbour, who was called Bernard Buckley, and ask him for tins of food and anything that they had spare. Fucking so sad. From debutante to desperate. Jeannie then died in 1950 and it took eight Mm. men to carry her coffin from Tullamarie, Tullarie, Tullarie, through waist deep waters. And when the police got there and looked at how she was living, they really encouraged Margaret to move out. But she refused. It was her home, you know. (laughs) I want this. I love this. (laughs) Don't you love what I've done with the place? (laughs) I guess it just becomes what you're used to. You just don't notice it anymore. The blackberry bushes, the rats. (laughs) The snakes. God. Anyway, the shock of losing her sister caused Margaret to become a complete recluse. And she would have been alone. But she had a little dog called Dingo, Michelle. And Dingo was his name. But it's not a dingo. It's a dog. It's not a dingo. A a dog dog called Dingo. Little dog called Dingo. Don't know where she got Dingo from, but... She's got Dingo. Dingo keeps her company. It wasn't a typo. It wasn't meant to no. be Bingo. Right. No, it's Dingo. Dingo. It's consistently Dingo. <laughs> <laughs> but she would she would entertain herself, I suppose, each night by reading detective novels by the light of a kerosene lamp. They didn't have any electricity at Tullery. And, um, you know, taking little Dingo, I don't know, for walks. Where would you take a Dingo? Where would you take him for walks? It's all swampland. Well, take him for a swim. <laughs> <laughs> Throw him out the window. There were some nearby neighbours, actually, Michelle. They were called Esme and Stanley Livingston, and they befriended the lonely old Margaret and would invite her over to spend the night occasionally. So Stanley Livingston, he was an ex-footballer, and somehow he managed to convince Margaret to sell Tullery to them. Oh. Because there was a caveat on on the mortgage, which meant that they could never sell I think it was some sort of caveat but he convinced her to take it off and in return he said that he would build her a small cottage on the property and that they continued to keep an eye on her and look after her but it was a weird relationship Mm. it was very weird for example there was this incident where the couple drove Margaret to a fire there was a bushfire and he was obviously a volunteer firefighter a lot of Australian men would have been so whenever there's a a fire which there always is everybody just mucks in my dad was one and you just you go off you go fight the fire along with all the others it's not unusual no No. so they drove to this bushfire so Stanley could help firefight and Margaret and Esme were sitting in the car when two strangers approached Margaret and ordered her to get out of the car. But then Stanley came over and the men ran away. But why was it just her they ordered out of the car and not Esme? Weird. That's very strange. And this was around the same time as when Margaret had agreed to transfer the property to the Livingstons. Yeah. Okay. So then on May the 14th, 1952, Margaret found her beloved dog Dingo dead. His throat was slashed. Oh, my God. Someone had killed him. And then a week later, Margaret disappeared. And Michelle, she was never found. No. Mm Mm-hmm. Had she already signed over the papers? Yes, she had. It was the 22nd of May. This is a week, just over a week after she found Dingo dead. She was 72 years old. And Stanley Livingston was the 
last person to see her alive, you see. On the morning of the 21st of May 1952, mm. the Livingstons had swung by Tullery to check in on Margaret, they say. And there was no word from her, which was unusual. So Stanley said that he was immediately concerned because the night before, his dogs had been barking. So he went to investigate, but there was no sign of anyone or anything. And then, obviously, the next day they went to check on Margaret. She wasn't there. They couldn't find her. So he called the police and a search for Margaret was launched. Okay. At first, it was assumed that Margaret had wandered into the swamps and drowned because she's an elderly lady at this point. But the locals didn't swallow this story because they knew that Margaret could navigate that swamp with her eyes closed. Well, she'd been doing it forever. So she knew that swamp. She knew the the highs and the lows. (laughs) Exactly. But despite this, the police did search the swamp, even dragging the deeper parts of it with grappling hooks, looking for a body, clearly. But the thing is, Michelle, Margaret never went anywhere without her walking stick. So when the walking stick was discovered at her house, it seemed as though Margaret may have left the house under duress. <gasps> I see. Now, can I ask you? Yes. This um, Stanley, what does he do? Is he a farmer? He was a football player and now he and his wife live nearby. So they must want the land for farming, I'd say. Mm. I think he's quite astute. He was well known in the football. I can't remember the, the team he played for, but it was a big one. Okay. In Victoria. So it's the, another type of football, not the one we talked about earlier with Balmain and no, no, no. the Eels. Eels. Okay. I'm just going to put it out there because I'm trying to solve the mystery here. Does he farm pigs? <laughs> because you know we always we know talk. Going. We always know that basically if someone goes missing on a farm, the pigs have had a good dinner. That's yes. how it goes. So I'm just <laughs> so worried. <laughs> I know. I'm just worried that poor Margaret ended up pig food. No, he didn't have pigs that I know oh, of. right, okay, okay. It's pasture land. So no, okay. but now it's swamp land. Yeah. But anyway, let me, let me get back to what I was saying. So we think that she's left the house under duress. Now, mm. what I didn't mention to you earlier, Michelle, was that she had a nephew and he was in line to inherit. But obviously there was that caveat on the mortgage. And she signed it over. I think he hadn't known that she'd signed it over. So in the days after her disappearance, this nephew made an appearance. That rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he stood to inherit the estate, he had then found out about Margaret's deal with the Livingstons. And he told an Australian newspaper called The Herald, which he must know about, that he believed his aunt had been murdered. He didn't feel that this was okay. But the Livingstons also spoke to a paper. They went to the Sun, and I'm assuming that's the UK Sun, because is there a Sun in Australia? I think there was. And then it became the Sun Herald. Something like that, yes. Right, okay. So he's, they told the other paper, the Sun, that they believed their neighbour had been killed or was being held captive against her will somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stanley has to be the obvious suspect here. Well, I was just going to tell you that. I was just going to say that most of the locals in the area, they suspected this guy Livingston, Stanley Livingston, because he was known to have a temper and Mm. he was an ex-footballer. He was extremely physically strong. And then there were rumours that people had said they'd heard him bragging that he did top Margaret (gasps) off. What a bastard. Top her off. Is that an expression? I'm not sure if it is. He topped her. He done it. He done (laughs) did it. He done a marder. (laughs) On the other hand, people suspected the nephew of having something to do with it because he unsuccessfully contested her will and the sale of the property after he claimed that Margaret was not of sound mental state, 
when she was signing the stuff over to the Livingston family. Yeah. The Livingston couple. Mm. So there you go. Thing is, though, this estate, to me, it's not worth anything. It's a fucking swamp. No, but it was before and then it was turned into this beautiful, beautiful estate and then it was into disrepair. So somebody who knows what they're doing can probably bring it back to its former glory. And so it has potential. Yeah. Mm. So in November 1978, there was a skeleton found. So this is years later. They were found in the sand dunes of a place called Venus Bay. And I Googled it. It looks absolutely beautiful. Venus Bay. It's four kilometers away from Tullery. But after investigating, it was discovered that these were not prehistoric, but they were pre-settlement bones. So that was an indigenous woman who had been dead since before European settlers even arrived. Wow. Okay. So really ancient bones. But kind of exciting. that you Yeah, know. really. Yeah. But it wasn't Margaret, but still. Then eight months after that, a couple found a 1940s-style handbag, a decaying lace shawl and coins from before Margaret's disappearance. Ooh. But nothing could be proven whether it was hers or not, unfortunately. But the police had their own ideas, you know. They had long believed that Stanley was responsible for the death of Margaret, but they didn't have enough evidence to lay any charges. So a coronial inquest began, Michelle, you'll be Mm -hmm. pleased to know. And that's when all the people started coming forward. We have a lady called Jean Sharp who came forward to give evidence. She'd been friends with Esme Livingston since 1971. And she told the inquest, and these are her words, One day Esme came to see me. I could see she had been drinking and she had said something similar to, Stan's going to get rid of me and I don't know what to do. She said that at Tullery, Stan used to leave her and sleep with the old lady. <gasps> and this had upset Esme greatly. This, I almost fell off my chair when I read that. Oh, my God. And nothing more is made of it. It's just this woman's word. I couldn't find any other info. But, yeah, I'm still doing Jean here. This is Jean. She said that Stan had been standing over the old lady. I'm not Jean now. I'm going to explain what standing over means. A standover man. It's somebody who's like a like a violent thug who is standing over you, not yeah. actually, but... Threatening. Yeah, they're forcing you to do something against your will. Yeah. That's a standover man, and he was standing over the old lady. Back to Jean. She said that Stan had been standing over the old lady until she would sign some document. Right. So he's sleeping with her. He's forcing her to sign documents. What the hell's going on? And poor Esme. But maybe he's forcing her to have sex with him as well. Ew. Maybe he was doing it to, I don't know, to ingratiate himself. And when that didn't work, he's standing over her. Who knows? Oh, God. Esme said, this is back to Jean now. Esme said she finally signed under threats of being shot and then suddenly disappeared. Oh, my God. Love thy neighbour, not Stan, you brute. (laughs) Obviously, it's allegedly. Alleged brute. Yes. Esme said Stan paid two men from Melbourne the sum of $1,000 to get rid of her body. She did not indicate how Margaret Clement was actually killed, but it seemed to point at Stan, having got the property, now wanted her out of the way. And that was Jean Sharp's testimony to the coronial inquest. Yep, okay, that's quite damning. She also said that Stanley was prone to violent outbursts and would not hesitate in beating Esme. She says the following, I have seen him holding her arm up her back and pulling her hair. Another time I saw him holding her on the floor by his foot on her head. What a nasty piece of work. Wow. But Esme Livingston told the coroner she didn't remember discussing Stanley's violence with any of the witnesses. And while under oath, 
Stanley Livingston did admit to having slapped his wife but denied killing Margaret Clement. Okay. He's not going to admit to that, is he? Like, why would he? But the coroner was not convinced. He basically said these two couldn't tell the truth if their lives depended on it. So there's a Detective Townsend who had interviewed Esme in 1978. He absolutely believed Stanley was the killer and that Esme was too afraid to say anything. You'll want to know what happened to Tullery Michelle. Stanley did get his hands on it. It was all binding and it went through. And he turned it back to its former glory. He drained the swamp. And then later on, in 1964, he sold it for $250,000, which was 10 times what he paid for it. And then he went on to own most of Curtis Island, which is near Gladstone. Okay. Take that on board. So he knew what he was doing. He would stop at nothing. It's really mean. Like, if he knew how to drain a swamp, I just can't believe no one was helping these inept ladies. They were all out to help themselves. Maybe they just thought how the mighty have fallen serves you right. Maybe they were terrible bitches to people beforehand. They could have been cunty. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, mum. So Stanley Livingston, he died of a heart attack in 1993, which prompted police to have another chat to Esme, who was now in a nursing home. He died a millionaire, Michelle. Ill-gotten gains. The detectives believed that Esme would have shed some light on things once Stanley had died, but sadly they got there too late. She died a year later, taking the secret of the swamp lady to her grave. But I will tell you that eavesdropper Danny's aunt's friend owned the Tullery homestead and that's why it was so interesting to her and that's why she gave me the heads up and she said it is occasionally open to the public and Danny has actually been there. She went there as a little girl because her aunt had her 40th birthday party Incredible. So it's still going strong as like a lovely old homestead. I think so. Baywit, it's a baywit. No shirt and thong. What a ding dong. Baywit, it's a baywit. Big gut hanging out. Giddy, 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 gas. Oh, I don't even know yet. What the, what the fuck? It's very funny. Your story has shades of what I'm going to talk about. We're very in tune, very in tune. Always, darling, always. Uh, this one really fascinated me because it's got a little Christmas angle because what happened to this family happened on Christmas Eve in 1945. Whoop. So kind of similar oh, yeah. time frames too we're talking about today. Yeah. This all happened in Fayetteville in West Virginia in America. Like I said, Christmas Eve 1945, there was a devastating house fire that ripped through the house of George Sodder. And his family. It just turned the whole scene of, you know, Christmas joy to basically a pile of smouldering ash. Oh, that's terrible. Now, he lived there, George lived there in the house with his wife, Jenny, and nine of his ten children. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ten kids. One of which had actually already left home and gone to the military. The night of the fire... Uh, His eldest daughter, Marion, who was 19, uh, she was working and she came home early to surprise the younger sisters with some toys. That was Martha, who was 12, Jenny, I guess Jenny uh, Junior, (laughs) who was eight, (laughs) and Betty, who was five. And look, they were thrilled that their older sister, you know, came home and gave them Christmas toys. And they begged their mum, Jenny, to like stay up late and hang out with Marion. And she was like, yep, no worries. So at 10 o'clock, the girls were still up 
along with their uh, 14-year-old brother, Maurice, and 9-year-old Lewis. George and the two oldest boys, John, 22, and George Jr., who is 16. And look, I apologise because even I'm getting confused with it's all these really names. really confusing. Why would you have, when you have 10 children, why call at least two of them a name that already exists in the family? That's just asking for trouble. Yeah, but maybe it's vanity. I'd never understood why people were Greg Jr. Oh, God. That's what's going on here. And like I said, I apologise. So many names. They all worked together and they were already in bed because they'd been working all day. So the boys were in bed. The girls were up, you know, having a giggle with the older sister. And Jenny, she'd gone to bed. The mum or the little girl? The mum. The mum, Jenny, she was already in bed because she took the two-year-old they had, Sylvia, up to bed, leaving the kids alone with Marion to look after. So at 12.30 that night, the phone rang. Uh, But it was a wrong number and Jenny remembers hearing the sound of like laughter and clinking glasses in the background and this woman giving a a weird laugh after Jenny said, oh, I think you've dialed the wrong number. When Jenny went back up to bed, she realised that all the lights were still on and the curtains hadn't been drawn in the house, which she thought was weird because the kids always turned off all the lights and drew the curtains. When she looked in, she saw Marion asleep on the living room sofa, but she didn't see the other kids. So she'd assumed they'd gone up to their bedroom, which was in the attic, but she didn't physically lay eyes on the kids. Mm. Then half an hour later at one o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of kids to keep eyes on though, isn't it? Nine of them. You'd be up all night checking. I know. It's a lot. Half an hour later at one o'clock in the morning, Jenny woke up because she heard something hit the roof and then a loud bang and then oh a rolling noise. Oh, no. And she was completely freaked out. And so she was kind of on high alert listening, but she didn't hear any other noises. So, you know, tried to get back to sleep. Where's the husband? Asleep. Oh. He's asleep. He's been working all day. He's absolutely knackered. Okay. So, you know, she's sort of getting up, answering the phone. She's doing all the shit. Well, you've got a two-year-old. You're probably a light sleeper at this point. So She hasn't had a good night's sleep for more than... 20 years. <laughs> Poor lady. <laughs> so she, she tried to get back to sleep, but half an hour later at 1.30 in the morning, she woke up because she smelled smoke. Oh, God. Yep. And it turns out George's office was on fire. And Jenny managed to wake up George and get Mm -hmm. Marion and Sylvia, the baby, and Mm -hmm. uh, John and George Jr. out of the house just as the fire started to take hold. Oh, God. And obviously, George and Jenny were freaking out because they knew five of the kids were still inside Mm -hmm. and they couldn't get back inside. And George tried to climb up the wall of the house. They had like a two, two or three-story house. They always had a ladder on the side of the house. It, it lived propped against the side of the, the Can house. Can I just say that that is inviting burglary? You, you shouldn't do that. They say that you have to lock it. Yes. I mean, it makes sense. But we are talking, yeah. you know, 1945 and... People it, were a bit more trusting. Yeah, it was just a, a nicer time, you know. George freaked out and thought I have to get inside to get my kids so he went to the side of the house where the ladder was so he could get to the attic to try and get the kids out but the ladder wasn't there 
what it had been moved from where it oh normally was so then he was like fuck what am i going to do so he went to try to get water to at least try and put out some of the flames it was christmas and the barrel with all the water for the garden or whatever it was frozen so there was uh, right. no water to be able to Shit. put out anything it's frozen solid he owned trucks he was a truck driver and he owned them and he thought right i'll get my truck drive it up to the house, then get on top of the truck and try and get into the house to try and get these kids. Hmm. But when he went to start the truck, the truck wouldn't work. What the hell, Michelle? Something's up here. I'm telling you. You're going to tell me. You got your radar. like My radar is up. It's rigid. It's alert. Vibrating. He, he was just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. At that time, obviously they had a phone, but phones weren't that common and they couldn't get into the house to try and phone the fire department and you know they lived sort of in the middle of nowhere so the fire department did not even know there was a fire no one called the fire department no one saw the fire they couldn't get into the house to call because there's no mobiles yeah thankfully someone down the line did actually get a hold of the fire department Mm. but they didn't get there till the next day. Oh my god! The next day, that's because terrifying. They were short-staffed, and the staff that were there at the fire department didn't even know how to drive the truck. What? Yeah. So by the time they got there, the house was just ash. Oh my goodness! Like a smouldering pile of ash. And I can't even imagine how terrifying it must feel to be in a fire like that, mm. especially when you yourself are battling smoke and flames to get out of the blaze Mm -hmm. you know with your life someone's done this to them on top of all that knowing that despite everything you've tried to do five of your 10 kids are inside burning alive terrible it's fucking heartbreaking except geordie (gasps) this story has a twist okay i'm ready for the twisteroo after the fire was put out Mm -hmm. You know, the authorities came to sort of check to see, like, what happened, how did the fire start? So they were combing through all the debris of the house. Yeah. The bodies of the five children were never found. Oh, my goodness. They didn't, they didn't perish in the fire. There were no human remains, no bones, no fragments, what? no bits of anything, Hang nothing. On. Let me just check something. The Marion on the sofa. She made it out. Yeah. Okay. So she came she made out. it out. Right. Yep. So there was five more that were up in the attic. So four kids got out. Yeah. Five didn't. So the two parents and four kids, the older kids and the sorry, three of the older kids, mm. the two boys, Marion and the baby, got out. Okay. The little girls didn't make it. They were all in the attic. Oh God. However, where the fuck are their remains? Yeah. Were these kids even in the house? Mm -hmm. Because do you remember the mum, Jenny, was like, why are the curtains not drawn and why are all the lights on? Oh, I've just had a really horrible, horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. Yeah. Some nasty, nasty man has come and abducted them and then set the house on fire. Well, that's a good theory. And there are some theories around this case. So there's no upshot. You haven't got an answer for me. Geordie, you have to keep listening to the oh, end of this story. I feel like you've I'm wrapped it up. Finished. That's it. Boom. Because for 76 years, no one knows what has happened to these kids and no one has ever seen these kids alive. Well, that sounds like it's a dud. No. Listen. There's, there's more? There's more. Because the thing is, 
George and Jenny, turns out they never believed their kids were in that fire. Mm-hmm. And they spent their entire lives looking for their five missing kids, like hoping one day they'd come back from wherever yeah. they were. And they never gave up hope and they never got over it. Oh, bless them. And instead of rebuilding their home, they, they couldn't bring themselves to live on that site because it was a site of real sadness and mystery for them. Yeah. So they actually converted the house site into a memorial garden to their missing kids. Oh. And Jenny wore black for the rest of her life. Wow. Combing through all the details leading up to the fire and afterwards, they couldn't believe when they'd done all of their own sort of investigations that their kids burned in that fire because there just wasn't any evidence to back it up. So, you know, it is like, what the fuck is going on here? Because Mm. like you came up with, there are theories about what happened to those children. Yeah. So I'm going to start by looking at George and the family. So George was actually an Italian immigrant from Sardinia. Uh, He was born in 1895 and he immigrated to the United States when he was 13 years old. Wow. With his older brother, who the older brother didn't actually stay in America. Instead, went straight back to Sardinia. So they dropped him off? Yes. That's what (gasps) I was going to say. When I read that, I was like, that brother's just doing a fucking drop off. Yeah. A 13-year-old boy. Yeah. Why would you leave a, a kid in a new country like that, all on their own. It just doesn't make any sense. He changed his name. His name in Italy was Giorgio Sodu, which is not a very Italian name, but now he's George Soder. And for his entire life, apparently George never spoke about why he left Sardinia. Oh, my goodness. And I'm only raising this because is there something in this? You know, southern Italy, mafia connections. Mafia. I don't know. Over the years and after a load of, like, hard labour jobs – George must have had some smarts about him because he did start his own trucking company, which ended up being quite lucrative. And he married Jenny, who actually, it turns out, also had immigrated. From where? Italy, when she was a kid, to the US. So they were both Italian. And at that time, Fayetteville had quite a large community of Italian immigrants. And the couple decided to settle there. And that's where they, you know, started having their kids And because George's trucking business was making good money, he became, you know, quite influential in the town. But he was also known for having quite strong opinions, which didn't really go down well with a lot of people. And he was really anti-Mussolini. And Mussolini founded the fascist party in Italy and eventually became prime minister. In the 40s, Exactly. So he was quite outspoken about being anti-fascist and anti-Mussolini. And because he lived in a very strong Italian community in Fayetteville, it did not go down well, apparently, because there were a lot of people who did support Mussolini. He didn't have enemies as such, but but he ruffled a lot of feathers. And in fact, because he was quite outspoken about his anti-fascist beliefs, In October 1945, apparently there was a life insurance salesman who was not too impressed about George, you know, shit-talking Mussolini. And he said to him in his house, your house will go up in in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Oh, foreshadowing. But what a fucking weird thing to say. It is weird. Yeah, it's not nice. Then shortly after that salesman had been to the door at at George's house, Another guy knocked on the door looking for work and said to George that he thought that his fuse boxes 
look dodgy and that they could cause a fire someday. Oh. Mm. Another weird thing, right? He's being targeted. Well, George th- thought this was really weird because he'd just had the house rewired because he'd bought Jenny an electric stove. And the electrician had gone through the whole house and said, yep, it's all in tip-top shape. Your fuses, your wiring are all safe. Then in the lead up to Christmas, because remember this all happened on Christmas Eve, 1945, George's older sons said they saw a strange car parked on the main street of the town with people inside who were watching George's other kids walk home from school. Whoa. Mm. So things are not stacking up here, but they do get weirder because they held an inquest into what caused the fire. And the local coroner concluded that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Yeah. And look, I don't actually really know how these inquests work, but there were jurors at the inquest. And it turns out one of the jurors was the salesman, the guy who said to George that his house would be burned down and his children would be destroyed. What? Yep. So it's all just weird, weird, weird. But despite no remains of these kids being found, death certificates were issued for the kids five days later. Five. Wow, that's quick. Really quick. The funerals for those five kids were held on January the 2nd. Where are those kids, Michelle? Yeah. Well, George and Jenny didn't go. They didn't go to the funeral. They didn't believe that they had died. There are just too many questions and too many strange things going on here that don't make sense. What do they think? Well, they were like, how could it be faulty wiring? Because they said the Christmas lights on the house had stayed on in the early stages of the fire. As the house was burning down, the lights were still on. Mm -hmm. Surely those lights would have gone out if it was a a faulty wiring. Mm -hmm. Then the ladder that was always on the side of the house... It was later found 23 metres away. Where? On the property? On the edges of their property in a forest. Somebody's moved Somebody's that. moved that. Yeah. And then there were questions, obviously, about those bodies. How come no remains were found in the rubble when they found half-burned kitchen appliances? Mm-hmm. You know? So the thing is, it was obvious that even though the fire was scorching hot... It wasn't hot enough to completely incinerate those bones because kitchen appliances were found. And also, we know this, even when you burn bodies at a crematorium, bones remain. We we know this? We do know this. this. We know this, Jordi, and I'm not (laughs) going to bring up why we know this, but you in particular know this. (laughs) Yes, I know this. There are gritty bits and they are bone fragments. Your body doesn't burn, 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 not even in a crematorium. And there's no way that fire was hot enough to absolutely just leave no trace of these kids, right? Yeah. Then in a nearby town, there was another house fire that was investigated. Uh, It killed seven people. All seven bodies, you know, the remains were found from that fire. So this doesn't add up, right? So were the kids still alive somewhere? Like you said, had they been snatched? Was the fire yeah. deliberately lit? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. The fire was deliberately lit. There's no doubt. Well. But where were the children? Well, going back to the fire, actually. Yeah. It did come to light later on that it wasn't an electrical fault. Because you remember when Jenny said she heard something on the roof? Yes, and rolling down. It sounds like a Molotov cocktail. Well, a bus driver who had been passing through late at night 
through the town on Christmas Eve said he had actually seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Oh, my God. Molotov cocktail, you are on the money. And then I knew it. More than that, right, people then started saying that they'd seen the missing kids. This. What do you mean? Well, one woman had come forward saying she had seen the five kids looking out of the window of a car while oh. the house was burning. Oh, my God. So dark. And then a waitress at a services in a town that was a few hours away from Fayetteville, she said she'd served the kids breakfast on Christmas morning, you know, at the like truck stop diner where she worked. Who else was with them? Two adults. Who? A male, a woman? What? I don't know. But rumours started circling around the town that the authorities had actually found organs and tissue in the rubble. But to spare what? the feelings of the family, they didn't say anything. Oh, my God. This is just twisted. I know. But I'm calling bullshit on that because Call it. I don't think that's right. And I did read things where apparently one fireman had found a heart and he'd put it in a box and buried it. And then they went to the box and it was actually, it turns out it was like the heart of a, of a cow. So what the fuck? They're trying to fuck with his family. Yeah. All, it's all crazy rumours. Through it all, George and Jenny, and they did actually go to their graves, still believing that their kids were alive. And in fact, one day George saw a photo in a magazine of a group of ballet dancers in New York. And he thought, fuck, there was one of them that was the absolute spit of his missing daughter, Betty. Oh, and he got in touch. He tracked down who this girl was. He begged to be able to meet this girl. Wasn't allowed. He was denied. Why? Exactly. Why? Well, probably because you thought, what's his creepy man want? To, well, maybe a stalker. But he explained, listen, you know, this is what happened to me. Your daughter looks exactly like my daughter that went missing, you know, same age. Like it all tallies up. No. He even tried to get, George tried to get the FBI on board saying that he believed the kids had been kidnapped, but the FBI wouldn't bite. They weren't interested. No one wanted to help George by the sound of it. No, no. And Michelle, I want to go back to another thing, and I don't know if you've written it in there and not didn't have anything else to say, but the phone call with the weird laughter and the, the glasses clinking, it's haunting me. Okay, well, apparently they did investigate that, and it turns out it was actually a wrong, a wrong number. number. With yes. just a weird lady laughing. <laughs> yeah, and she said, oh, I did, I did just do a wrong number. But did she? Or was it a distraction yeah. to take away from the Molotov cocktails? Like, you don't know. You just don't know. Was somebody involved to distract the family? I, I don't know. There's a lot there. And look, actually, a few years later in 1949, uh, authorities did do an excavation, another excavation of the site, and they did find some bone fragments. But oh. they sent these bone fragments to the Smithsonian Institute who did really rigorous testing on it. Yeah. And they basically said the bones were not from the kids. And also the bones had no fire damage to them. And they believed the bones were from an adult, not kids. Then it turns out those bones actually came from a grave in a nearby cemetery. What? That had been taken out and put on the site. Somebody has gone to an awful lot of trouble here. They really fucking have. But the thing is, despite all the knockbacks, 
the Sodders never gave up hope that their missing kids could be found. They printed up flyers with pictures of the kids. They posted a $5,000 reward, which was a lot of money back then. And yeah, they even sure. doubled it to 10000 Because remember, he's a successful trucking guy. He's got money. And then in 1952, they put up a billboard at the site where the house had been and then another one on Route 60 with pictures of the kids and info about the reward. And there were some leads from this. But obviously, you know, you get crackpots ringing in as well. So it was really kind of hard to decipher like who had real information and who were just like misery hunters trying to make up stories. But there was a woman called Ida Crutchfield who ran a hotel in Charleston, who says she put her life on it, that she saw the kids a week after the fire. She says they'd come into the hotel around midnight with two mm. men and two women Ooh. who okay. she thought were Italian. Right. But then there was no evidence to say that it was or it wasn't. You know, mm. they paid in cash, there's no record, you know, all of that kind of thing. And then over the years, people said they saw one of the kids, Martha, yeah. In a convent. There were rumours that Lewis and Maurice were living in Houston. And then someone even sent the family a photograph of a guy that they said was Lewis, who was 30 years old if he'd been alive. Yeah. And on the back of the photograph was handwritten, Lewis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132 or 35. What? No clue what any of that shit means. It's all really cryptic. It's such a mystery. It's like Line of Duty or something. It is, isn't it? It's crazy. And look, I actually looked at the picture and I put it against the picture of Lewis as a kid to this guy who was 30 years old. And do you know what? I actually don't think it's him because Lewis as a kid had very thin lips. Mm. This one who was 30 years old... Very handsome, big, full, pouty lips. You don't grow lips. No, you don't grow lips. So I'm kind of calling bullshit on that. I get that the parents, they want to believe. They want to believe that their kids are alive. They just wanted to know, did they die? Did they not die? Mm -hmm. The whole family and the kids who survived, when they were grown up, they never stopped investigating and looking for their sisters and brothers. The Sicilian mafia, you know, they have had a bit of scrutiny put on them because apparently at the time taking someone's kids Mm -hmm. was the worst possible punishment you could inflict as a mafia mafioso because you are actually inflicting emotional pain forever on someone you kill someone it's done yeah. But you take away their kids and, you know, in Italian society, kids are everything. They are. So, you know, there have been rumours about that, that they were then taken to Italy. In right. which case in 1945, you're never going to see these kids ever again. No. Baby Sylvia, who was the youngest of the surviving Soda kids, she only died last year oh. in 2021. But she went to the grave believing that her sisters and brothers didn't die in the fire. Uh-huh. And do you know what? It is a mystery with no answers and we're never going to know, I don't think. No, I don't think we are either, Michelle. Wow. Yeah. What a frustrating and fascinating loopy, loopy story. It is loopy. So there it is. Merry fucking Christmas. Oh, Merry fucking Christmas to you <laughs> too, you little bitch. <laughs> don't mean that really, Michelle. I think I'm going to have dreams about that tonight. It's so twisty turning. It is twisty turning because you just think, 
oh, poor five kids, you know, five kids died in a fire, boom, done. No, it, it just went on and on and, and no answers. Christmas mystery. I'm thinking that there's some mystery behind George and the reason why he was dropped off in America. See you later. Where did he stay? Who did he live with? Why did he change his name and all that? I mean, mm. there is some things that are very deep and very entangled. It's a crazy mystery. Well, that's absolutely fantastic, Michelle. Thank you very much for your time today. <laughs> No problem. Thank you for your time. <laughs> you sound like we're in a job interview. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for We'll let you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'll be in touch. Don't call Not. us. We'll call you. Don't call us. Just don't call us. <laughs> oh, but you can call us. Please eavesdrop. You know that we love to hear from you. It's the most wonderful thing. And it's a Christmas gift to us, isn't it? If you were to get in touch with us, you get your stories read out. Well, I was going to say, we love when you give us ideas. You know, we do like to investigate the... Yeah, we do. Well, Michelle, I think it's around about that time when we like to try and say correctly, whatever you do, (laughs) wherever you are, just just keep keep eavesdropping. So you know it is uh, wherever you are, whatever you do. (laughs) Eavesdropping, 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 e